This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners and viewers like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to stay updated with video releases, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and thanks for watching. I'm Rani Shatar, and this is The Beirut Banyan. beforehand not to talk about the same thing over and over and over this is actually the third episode i've done with uh, with uh, jean essier the first one was i think the second week of october 17th yeah and we were sitting in urbanista mm-hmm. exactly i think both of us were a bit sick that day mm-hmm. we're both coughing into the microphones but we were talking while there were protests happening literally right outside yeah. and we talked about I think a shared euphoria we both felt. The next time we spoke was over Zoom in the middle of Corona, and we were talking about things changing for the worse. Mm-hmm. And here we are, yeah. where nothing has gotten better. If anything, I think the subject's going to be heavier. So allow me just to quickly uh, go over what happened to you a few weeks ago. Any thoughts you have looking back? I know it's fresh. I know it's two or three weeks ago. But I'd like to have your insight into what happened to you, what you think is happening to journalism in general, and how you see things moving forward on that front before we get into politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, thank you for having me. Uh, concerning what happened, I think it's obviously targeting Megaphone, uh, given that I'm one of the co-founder and the current managing director, so it was addressed to me uh, personally. Uh, I mean, it's obviously alarming in many aspects, not just because of the way actually they summoned me uh, the way they actually uh, informed me that I'm summoned to the general security, which is by stopping my car while I was driving it uh, in Beirut, uh, very close to my house. But it's also, I mean, the reason why uh, they got pissed, which is this post that talks about the fact that we've been ruled and we're still being ruled by people who are evading justice. And uh, I don't think that this is a detail. I don't think that this is any other post that Megaphone has produced because it basically simplifies and sticks to the simple narrative that the establishment has been trying to dilute or to really uh, shift away from, which is that there's an entire establishment that cannot be reformed and that is completely uh, going in a direction that goes against uh, the will of its citizens. So whenever you're reminded of that simple reality by showing all these faces from Najib Mi'ate to Hassan Awaidet and others, who all have uh, files and are also facing uh, judicial uh, lawsuits and all of that and are evading justice, So the state security directorate Mm -hmm. had no legal authority to do what they did? No, because technically there is the publications court, which is where journalists should be be tried. And I heard you say it in different ways. It was a very polite interference while you were driving. You were Mm -hmm. very careful, I think, with your words because you were pointing at the fact that it wasn't an ambush the way we think of an ambush. You were just approached. But the way it was done could be both an an intimidating message to you. In other words, that's something you should not be addressing. And it's really just days away from Larabitar's story emerging. Mm -hmm. And now Nizar Sari's issue. Do you sense that this is 
a new wave that we're entering, in other words, a phase of intimidation that harkens back to maybe the Syrian occupation years? Or do you see this as really just a coincidence that all these things lined up at once? Because it was startling. Within a week, we hear three stories that came out of nowhere. I mean, it's not just about these three stories, and it's not just because we're journalists that uh, that we're making a big fuss about it. Uh, it's been the case, I mean, at least as long as we can remember since uh, Aoun came to power uh, sorry, yeah. in 2016. Uh, we've been seeing uh, citizen journalists being summoned uh, towards the Cyber Crisis Bureau, the Journal Security, and so on. So they've been establishing that as something normal. So if you criticize, you might be facing uh, that kind of intimidation. And of course, it's worrying. Uh, sometimes it gets violent. I mean, we've seen what happened with uh, Muhammad Zbib. We've seen what happened with Lukman Slim. Yeah. So we have so many examples of things also turning um, bloody and violent. And it happens overnight, right? We, we don't know how, how these things happen. And yet, that's a new chapter that, uh, that opens up. So, I mean, we know that we don't live in a free country. We know that there is an inherent uh, security system that is uh, constantly trying to monitor how things uh, are going. Personally, I'm not too worried that we're going in a phase that's similar to, to the early 2000s. I still think that we have some leverage to prevent that from happening. But obviously, I mean, it's, a, it's an alarming sign. So one step further on this issue, and maybe we can have a, a back and forth on this, because yeah. maybe we don't see it the same way. I saw that there was a quick retraction and a sign of success in that Megaphone's supporters, mm -hmm. not just Megaphone, obviously, Dutch supporters, and many people that support what you do, a lot of people expressed support, sympathy, and they showed up. Yeah. And the retraction was two or three days after the summoning. Laudabitar's Cyber Crimes Bureau investigation was more or less shelved. Now, Nizar Sari is in the middle of something. But I thought that popular protest worked in those very limited instances where someone like Hassan Waidet retracted, which to me was a good thing. But do you see it that way or do you see it more in it's just cosmetic? No, no it's not cosmetic. I have to see it that way. I, I have to see the, the glass half full. But I can't help see how ephemeral this, this is, right? We have to mobilize so many resources for our rights to be respected. And if you weren't lucky enough, and if it wasn't a, a slow news week, let's say, and some more eventful stuff mm. were happening in the country, I think people who have moved on. And this is not at all a criticism about people's ability to get mobilized. It's just an observation about how bad the situation is. I don't think outrage works anymore, like in the sense that we've faced so many injustices in the past three years from yeah. An economic collapse slash class war that is being waged on people to August 4 and the lack of uh, accountability. That summoning a journalist, I mean, we're still lucky that people get mobilized for that, right? Because the real crime is uh, still ongoing. But it felt like the backlash for a moment sent the right message. It did. No, no, it did, of course. Yeah, unlike the early 2000s, where it took pressure and almost, almost political support to interfere mm -hmm. now it seemed like people were interfering and that was maybe maybe because it all happened so quickly it seemed like a, a positive sign but that could not be right i guess if you stretch it out of course and there's also i mean the undeniable role of the alternative syndicate of journalists yeah which for me is one of the big success stories of uh, october 17th right. it's one of those uh, bodies that were able to get organized and to actually represent a sizable group of journalists who now feel 
that there is a body that actually can get mobilized if they're in trouble. Yep. And uh, that's not a detail at all in a country where we know that the syndicates of journalists have been totally co-opted uh, by the establishment's parties and mouthpieces. I want to tell the audience, the last two times we spoke, and I think every time we've met in person, we're wearing the same clothes. It's always the same shirt. Now, I made a mistake. I thought you would go with black jeans. No. I had blue jeans on. I took them off. Same, almost the same shoes. <laughs> if you look back at our old episodes, we're literally, look, we look the same. You're more handsome. You're taller. You're younger, fresh. I'm a bit expired. But every conversation we had with these types of clothes on, there was always in the background a political discussion that had not matured. Mm -hmm. And I think it has matured. And yeah. I want this to be the focus of this discussion. It's terrain that I think we've talked about once or twice in private. We've messaged about once or twice in private. But we've never really flushed it out. Yeah. From the first days of October 17, it wasn't said ex explicitly, but it was there, that this movement was going to be divided. And it was going to be divided mostly around familiar topics. They're not new. They're old. And I think every time we spoke, that, that divide grew further apart. And maybe that's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's just the way it should be. But I'm hearing now, I think a lot of us are hearing this, that there's finally some structuring happening, which is new. That maybe it's not always right oh. <laughs> to call these things center-left or center-right or left or right or whatever, the rigid left and the far right, maybe there are two camps coalescing around what was October 17, what was civil society prior to that in politics, and maybe it's happening for the first time. Is there anything you could introduce here? Maybe there's some insight, something you've mm -hmm. been doing to make that old news, not that we're always divided around the same things over and over and over. I mean, we knew the fault lines uh, among what we call the opposition or civil society from 2015, right? So you have the Hezbollah fault line, you have uh, the economic one, like some people are more liberal, some other are more on the left, and you have everything related to gender equality, individual liberties, and so on, roughly speaking. And you could add the fourth dimension, which has to do with how we see Lebanon and its role in the region, right? And along these fault lines, you had different groups emerging uh, that are all very much anti-establishment, very much in the opposition. For me, I see October 17 more as a consensus building in a sense that there was actually a new common sense that was trying to be established that is based on the fact that we cannot rely anymore on this establishment as a partner in reform. Not any side of this establishment, irrespective of how dangerous each component of the establishment is. The fact that the economy is essential uh, component of our conversation and also the fact that the question of sovereignty and Hezbollah and so on is, is a key component. Yeah. So I don't see it as two camps or different camps. I see that you have people who are still committed, roughly, to what felt like a consensus that was emerging out of uh, October 17. And I say consensus two, with... Two uh, camps committed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, what I'm trying to say is that you have people who are still within that, uh, that spirit and mm. still fighting to actually give a, a spine and a backbone mm. to that uh, ambitious or that political positioning and translate it into political parties and political movements and coalition. And unfortunately, you have other groups that totally uh, bought into uh, the new polarization that we're seeing in the country that, in my opinion, is uh, artificial and was imposed 
by Hezbollah, but also by the Lebanese forces, in trying to make us choose between, on the one hand, the economic battle to actually uh, preserve people's rights for a decent li- uh, livelihood, and the sole battle of uh, fighting and opposing Hezbollah. And this process of polarization and cooptation happened over several phases. Mm-hmm. I think the most dangerous one was uh, Tayuni. Yeah. And it's only after that that we really saw among uh, the October 17 political groups, some people saying, like, okay, maybe we should shift uh, to a different kind of, uh, of narrative. Maybe we should consider actually uh, toning it down on that topic or that other topic. So again, I, I really don't see it as center left. Center left. I, I see it as people are still committed to something that started uh, three years ago. And they're also committed to the different uh, political realizations we had, not only after the economic collapse, but also after August 4. And the ones who are, in the name of pragmatism, trying to cope with that uh, de facto reality, which is what the parties are imposing, and, uh, and navigate that new terrain. Let's make this as personal as possible without making it about ourselves. Okay. So in <laughs> other words, the world we live in and how we see it, not necessarily what you stand for individually, more like your own outlook. To me, it seems like a fait accompli that there will be two parties that represent October 17, long term, maybe not right now. Is that fair in stating that, that that's where things are moving? Two separate parties that maybe work together on most things, but don't always work together. I mean, no, factually, this is not where things are going. It's mm. unfortunately, uh, I say unfortunately, because I would actually wish if people would, would merge, like those little small groups were actually come under one more structure and a uh, uh, stronger umbrella. But it's not going in that direction. You have a coalition building, and these coalitions are not necessarily based on uh, a very homogeneous uh, political discourse or project. Very often it's based on very narrow interests. These interests could be electoral, that could be related to the consideration of the freshly elected MPs. So what I'm getting at is that I would really wish for us to have a more mature way of dealing with politics and actually bringing these new groups into new structures that are more robust, uh, having a, a strong uh, leftist or social democratic party, maybe a, a more center-right uh, party. That's absolutely fine. That's actually a healthy way uh, of, of doing things. So but the- I'm not seeing it uh, happening this way. I mean, mm. I'm personally involved in an effort to actually bring together uh, groups that are uh, more on the left and that are very uh, clear on their stance towards uh, Hezbollah, individual liberties, the economy, and so on. And I know that other people are also trying uh, and getting involved in, in, in similar efforts. But uh, the idea of two party or two camps, I, I don't see that clearly today. Coalition building doesn't necessarily go down that road. No. If you, since you're intimately involved, mm-hmm. if you could point at one thing that's making this impossible, what is it? And I, I'm sorry to be blunt here, but that's because it's years and years and years of this being an obvious outcome, yet it doesn't happen. I mean, I think the main impediment today is, unfortunately, and very petty considerations. Mm. So I don't think that what's really standing in the way of trying to organize that opposition scene has anything to do with like profound disagreement, with a few exceptions. We have a few exceptions where you have either parties or personalities or MPs that, in my opinion, are really taking a lot of distance with my understanding of what we stood for uh, four years ago. 
So right. that could be even among the 13. Yeah, of course. Yeah. No, no. I'm yeah. talking about the 13th. Yeah. I'm also talking about some groups that are uh, uh, cl close to these people in the sense that uh, yeah, they could be either uh, diluting uh, the conversation we have related to the economy and related to what has been done on, on that level, or also not dealing with the, with the question of Hezbollah the way it should be dealt with. So I think that this is definitely an issue, but I believe that most groups and activists who were part of October 17 actually could find a way to uh, get organized, uh, both within parties that define who they are politically, but also bigger coalitions that can allow them to have more leverage in the political scene. The same way it actually happens in the early 2000s. Mm, exactly. So yeah. you had uh, larger tables, Minbar uh, Democrate, etc. And then you had new parties that emerged, like the Democratic Left, right. like Tajaddo uh, Democrate, and so on. So there was a, enough room to distinguish yourself and build something that has weight and a clear ideology and identity, and at the same time be part of a broader uh, coalition building uh, effort. Assuming that this registered party is still registered, Democratic Left, mm -hmm. so you could not you personally, but let's say the group that you, the coalition that you want to maybe coalesce around one party. It's a registered party. It can be reactivated and it makes sense. For me, I think that's the strategic advantage October 17 could have and not always squabbling with groups like the National Bloc or the other 13 that don't really see eye to eye on every single issue. So from what I'm hearing from you is that this is not going to happen but it still should happen no no uh that's not what i'm saying i'm, I'm saying that today you have a lot of people a lot of groups uh be, be grassroots groups uh, student based groups and and so on that are actively trying uh to merge and to build basically uh a party that oh but not necessarily democratic left it's something no, no, from scratch yeah something from scratch yeah. but i mean doesn't make a big difference what it is if it used to exist mm. or not what i'm trying to say is that the posi positioning in politics that in my opinion needs to be uh, uh, organized within a party structure and you have efforts going into that direction today uh, from a lot of people from different generations i've heard that conversation so long and that's why the effort, I always hear about this effort, yet it doesn't get there. I, I hope it finally matures to that because mm -hmm. that makes politics more meaningful and you can maybe get something done. Mm -hmm. Now, you're not in the other side. You're not, I, I'm asking you maybe from how you see it. Do you sense the center-right groups are doing more and getting closer to that? And it could be even things that seem outrageous right now, but even sort of that broader alliance with even traditional party or traditional parties. Do you think they're going in that direction? In the direction of a merger into a single party? Something that's more, yes. Yeah. I don't see it that way. For, for the reason I mentioned, actually, for the consideration mm -hmm. of the groups and individuals and so on, which, as I said, has been our main curse for the past four years. Yeah. Like this has really been the main impediment in addition to everything else happening around us. Yeah. But in terms of us as agents and individuals, this has been the main impediment to actually uh, build uh, more robust and mature uh, political structures. Both of us were not so politically involved in March 14. I, mean, yeah, I was 12 years old. You so, were 12? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was there, but I was 12. You were there. That's yeah, what yeah. counts. Yeah. I was 24. Okay. Thinner. <laughs> A lot thinner. 
not to make them this it's not i'm not trying to they're different eras they're maybe not exactly the same issue always but coalition building seemed a lot easier back then especially the build-up to march 14 and you hinted at this already groups like democratic left yeah. that could talk to groups that they don't necessarily see eye to eye with all the time is there a missing ingredient right now that can make that happen again I think you had a different toolbox altogether. Like back in the day, you had uh, individual leaderships that mattered a lot mm. and that could easily bring people on the table, that could easily strike deals, mm. make things much faster, which is very different from the more grassroots, organic, leaderless scene that we had since 2015. Right. With groups that are uh, flatter, uh, actually more democratic as well. But this also comes with the impediment of being able to take fast decisions, being able to uh, position uh, oneself uh, quite easily. So I think that back in the day, you also had, uh, I mean, structures that either emerged from the war and were still uh, a minimum organized. Yeah. Even the left had more uh, spine and was more organized because of getting out of uh, something that was a bit more institutional. Uh, and they were exposed right away for that. For absolutely. Being, yeah. And you also had generations that were closer to each other. So you had experiences that was transmitted from one generation to the other. So, I mean, I'm not saying that it was necessarily better mm. because you also had very short-lived experiences, right? The democratic left is, is, is one of them. It wasn't able to, to last pa past uh, yeah. uh, March 14. And it actually had to make uh, huge compromises, mm. which is to completely blend with, within March 14 and then lose its singularity and its edge and its uh, raison d'etre. So, but I agree with you that um, being able to see one's interest and acting uh, much faster and building coalition was probably easier back then, probably because of the structure of, of the, the groups uh, that were existent, which is very, very different, both sociologically and in terms of hierarchy, in terms of organization structure than what you have today. So even if the, the slogans are familiar and maybe even the people are sometimes the same, they had structure to lean on 17, 18 years ago and today, the same people don't. Um, huh? In other words, in other yeah. words, that that very quick, aggressive moment between March and June two thousand five. Yeah, that seemed like real politics happening, not just on the street. Mm -hmm. Whatever happens June two thousand five afterwards, we can talk about that forever. Yeah, but that political alliance happened very quickly, mm -hmm. and it happened with structure. It happened with leadership. A lot of that leadership we know because we know what happened to them. Yeah. Is that the missing ingredient right now? We're not in a similar situation. In 2005, you had within the establishment fundamental contradictions that you could bet on mm. for a very tangible result, mm. which is the withdrawal of Assad's troops from Lebanon. Right. And back in the day, one could genuinely ask the question, is it worth making a compromise with former warlords yeah. and people who are also corrupt for that greater goal, which is the second independence. Right. We're nowhere close to that today. First, you don't have any partner in the establishment that is showing any willingness towards reform or any, any sort of uh, recalibration, basically, of, uh, of the political scene that we have today. On the contrary, at every occasion, we see that there is a very tacit solidarity that shows up. Uh, with this establishment, it, it has the incredible ability to put aside all their differences and their fundamental disagreement to actually team up when needed and w where they're threatened. 
So I don't think the parallel stands. And to be even more specific, if you're hinting at the fact that the Lebanese forces, let's say, could be a potential partner to face Hezbollah, it's not just that I don't believe that. I think that it's actually very dangerous to think that way today. Because today you're talking about an actor that showed its determination to do all the maneuvers that are possible to actually have more power grip and, uh, and more power grab. Uh, I don't think that there's any sign that uh, these guys are engaged in a genuine um, uh, reformist or even sovereignist uh, process. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. So with your permission, could I go down that road a little bit? Yeah, sure. I, okay. Let's talk about the Lebanese forces mm-hmm. in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Are there any LF supporters here? So I <laughs> just be extra careful. <laughs> no, they don't show up. The LF that was able to make those structured decisions in 2005, mm-hmm. meaning they, they joined something bigger. He's out of jail. The party's reestablished quickly. And they're seeing eye to eye with what you said right now, which is the Syrian withdrawal. And they're able to speak the same language with left-wing groups, even the head of the Communist Party, George Hewey. That kind of quick decision-making and politics, I still think that that's necessary this time around. Not because they're the Lebanese forces, it's not that. It's not because they are... It's not because they're, they don't, I don't, there's no special status here, but it's more that they are, I think, and you tell me if you don't see it this way, the only party right now in the political establishment that gets close to speaking some of the language that's coming from October 17th, from the center right and the center left. Uh, I don't see it this way, unfortunately. I think the only common ground, and for a different reason, is the opposition to Hezbollah. When it comes to the economy, they're very far from what we stand for. And they're also going in a very dangerous route, which has to do with um, privatization and selling state assets and so on and so forth. And uh, also the media pundits that are very close to them are very much engaged in that, uh, uh, in the whitewashing campaigns of Riyad Salema and so mm. on and so forth. Mm. So this is on the one hand. On the, on the other hand, there's something very structural that... Uh, that I'm sure also you remember from a different age, the Lebanese forces being a key ally of, of Saudi Arabia mm. and also heavily funded by Saudi Arabia. Today, Saudi Arabia is opening to the Assad regime. Tomorrow, they might open up to, uh, I don't know, to Hezbollah, right? Mm. What will be the stance of the Lebanese forces when this happens? I know where I will be. Mm. Uh, unequivocally opposed to Hezbollah without any form of, uh, right? We know what happened in 2009, right? When Saad Hariri was also forced to go to Damascus. Mm -hmm. I'm giving these examples. I could give a thousand more examples. There is absolute mistrust Mm. in these actors. And of course, ideologically, we're very different. Mm. I don't think they stand for the same Lebanon that I uh, hope for. I agree. But I mean more in choosing your battles accordingly. So then we can go down this road. Bob, though. I don't think it has to be this level of paralysis. I think it could be a smoother process, even if that candidate doesn't necessarily win. But the backlash is so severe that it makes it seem like there's an absolute This is a totally different uh, thing. If you're talking about presidential elections, if you're talking even about the August 4th, if you're talking about anything that has to do with the parliament and the institution, 
I believe that the 12 MPs have to deal with the parliamentary reality. Right. And yeah. strike alliances on specific uh, cases, right? Mm, yeah. On a specific law that is actually a reform law. Mm. This could actually happen, right? They could actually uh, make use of uh, their uh, parliamentary weight to uh, strike different forms of uh, punctual agreements on yeah. specific issues. But what you were hinting at was more of a strategic alliance. I think we're very, very far from that in more, the sense more. that, uh, I mean, the best use of our time today is to actually get organized so that what we stood for four years ago is no longer some form of uh, discursive uh, dream that has absolutely no actionable uh, way to be implemented in politics, right? I think this is what we're fighting for today, is not to have to choose between uh, the banks on the one hand and Hezbollah, or the Lebanese forces and Hezbollah, mm. is to be able to stand firm and say, no, we're still opposed to something that we see as the establishment, and we will fight all the faces of this establishment, and we're holding on to that uh, ambition of, of a new society and new system we want to build. I think this is always the, it's the same road in, in every single discussion, I think, that we all have, which is there's two ways to address what Hezbollah inherited from the Syrians in 2005. Mm -hmm. There's two ways to address security. One is, I think, a head-on approach, which is that's the paramount problem that you have to untangle. <laughs> Turn off airplane mode. I, I did though. Yeah. <laughs> that was. I wonder what it's. I wonder what I said that got okay. her attention. Oh, I said Syrian, right? <laughs> That's funny. What Hezbollah inherited, which is mostly security, foreign policy as well, but security is the big issue. That you either untangle it head on, and that's a very difficult, very ugly journey. Or you find a holistic way to approach it, meaning every problem alongside Hezbollah has to be addressed at once. I think the former, this is where we can get into this, I think the former allows the latter to breathe. I find it very hard to hold Riyadh Salemi to account while we have this paralyzing machine called Hezbollah. And I sense that's where a lot of these movements sort of stumble and then they become marginal when they should be the majority. So I meant less uh, strategic alliance, more majority alliance. That finding common, common cause on at least a few things that matter to the whole country. Then the endless debate on everything else that has to happen. But I, I just don't see the latter happening. I see the former as necessary. Three things on that. Yeah. So first, I don't mind having battles that can be won. Mm. So for example, if today we can actually have some progress when it comes to uh, Riyadh Salemi or the economic plan that still is yet to, uh, to be seen and so on, great. If we can actually find good results in being able to get a president that's not completely uh, tied to Hezbollah and Syrian regime, that's something actionable that, that mm. we can achieve. At. Personally, I don't think that this is on the table. Personally, I don't think that there is something really being offered on, on, on that front. What I want to discuss is also the very experience of 2005 mm. and those historical alliances. Yet again, I don't think that you have the conditions today for something that looks like 2005. But it's extremely dangerous to strike a deal and then potentially lose yourself, right? So the left after 2005 and what it stands for and its ambition for the country completely disappeared. Both the Mumena and the democratic left was completely crushed by these two big camps, which were March 8th and March 14th. 
still think that the alliance Momena was crushed. The Momena left. The old left. became irrelevant. Right, right, right. Yeah. So yeah. the left as a whole became became irrelevant. Yeah. So today, very honestly, I'm I'm way more interested in actually giving uh, some prospects to uh, the political uh, camp, let's say. Uh, or, or or the ideal we stand for, uh, uh, in a sense, and to give it a structure and to have it still exist in politics. Mm. Because I think that this also has to do with the possibility of seeing a country that might one day resemble us. Uh, then thinking today about ways to hack this uh, the system or, or to shortcut things. I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely believed today if, if the democratic left back in the day was a much stronger, more robust political party, it might have had some bargaining power that would have allowed it not only to survive, but also to impose some concession to their uh, sectarian allies of the day. But wouldn't it be fair, Jean, to say that Hezbollah is the reason the traditional left is dead? Mm-hmm. They, they infiltrated that whole sphere of politics and made it something else. And I don't know if that's simply a failure of the left. I think that's a failure. Not a failure. It's what happens when Hezbollah is entrenched in our security. The way you're saying it is true. true. Oh, that that uh, political left that mattered, I don't think it faded away because it simply faded because it's unpopular. No, no, of course not. Right. So that that's what I mean by the same problem exists. No, no, but you, we, we know the factors, right? There are many. Mm. You had the political assassinations that happened in 2005, mm. Samir Asir Jashawi, and you also had some uh, political decisions that followed by this left course and you also have the fact that it's an experience that wasn't allowed to to mature it was a very short-lived experience yeah and after that we know what happened to the country and we face something that we've always faced which is one generation does its political experience to the fullest and then you have a gap that lasts a few years and then you have another generation which is mine which Hmm. started in 2011 right that starts from scratch and you don't have these continuities you don't have these structures that can last over several years Obviously, the assassinations are not at all a detail or something anecdotal. They were, they were fundamental, both in halting the growth of the democratic left and also in the... Do you speak French? I don't speak French, no. You were saying that? that you should... And PhDs. Not clowns, not clowns who speak on microphones. Sorry, who, 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 who was that? Do you have a French dude? Do you have a PhD? <laughs> that was interesting, though. So that was like a critique in French about you or me? I, I don't know the guy, so maybe he knows both. me. But... Both. Well, let's invite him. <laughs> Yeah, he's probably smarter than both of us combined. <laughs> Wondering who that is, though. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Let's go back to the the reason why this leftist movement just doesn't stick. Mm-hmm. So we were getting into this. You were you were going through the reasons, and you were ad- addressing also security that prevents it from happening. Yeah. But I, I just still see that as why we don't have a robust left right now that is not critical of Hezbollah. We have a respected left i will put you in this camp that's able to talk about everything mm-hmm. but the real left where the momentum is i think it's been hijacked i don't think there's a real left where there's momentum today in the sense that okay. the left is in a pretty bad shape in mm-hmm. lebanon 
But I don't agree that uh, what you would define as the Mumena is louder than leftist voices who are very critical of Hezbollah, mm. who can stand with refugees, who can have a very progressive stance on everything related to uh, uh, gender, individual liberties, who have an extremely clear stance on Palestine and whatever happening there from the occupation to apartheid, and uh, who at the same time have a, a secular democratic project for Lebanon. I think that these are the loudest. They're not labeled as leftists today, mm -hmm. but I think that they're not labeled as leftists. No, but if you think about it, this, this for me is the common sense of October 17, without the ideology or label that comes with it, right? To a large extent, this narrative is a narrative that has been widely accepted, hmm. being both very critical of Hezbollah, upholding individual liberties, seeking a more or less secular, democratic Lebanon, uh, an economic system that's based on social justice, a rupture with the past and the uh, warlords of the this is pretty much, I think, the the baseline of at least a big chunk of the new generation that uh, that did October 17. So I'm not, I, I don't look at it in such a grim way. I think mm. the issue is that this uh, this audience doesn't have a political interlocutor that it can actually interact with, which is a party, right? Right. So yeah. I don't think that at the level of ideas we really lost the game. Mm. I think it's at the level of structures and our ability to come together in a robust structure. And that structure could then enter power, not be on the margins. That's yes, the goal. Of course. I think it's still up for grabs. I really think that it's the decent politics that should emerge in Lebanon don't because of security. I really believe this. Even the, even the most the most mundane issues today sort of trickle back to that issue too. But I, I'm glad you, the way you're saying it means that you, in a way, you're putting it in a in a very holistic approach that you can stay principled to your core, even when staying on the margins and not working with any group in in, in power. I don't know if that's going to create much momentum, especially since when you're saying that having a party that represents the left right now is still down the road. It's not happening. It's it's way closer than, than it used to be maybe three years ago because I think that we've came to a moment of realization that this is the actual tool we need to navigate uh, today's politics. And yep. this is what was lacking three years ago. But I mean, really, to go back on the question of security, obviously, in the 80s, you had the leftist figures that have been assassinated okay, by Hezbollah. Uh, in 2005, same thing. Yeah. That's not a detail. The security component is, is not a detail at all. But also being focalized on that point is extremely fatalistic. And I think that leftists were able to reinvent themselves uh, politically and also to get reorganized despite that factor. And also on that, it's very important to see that on this level, we have no ally. Yeah. People who are secular in this country have no ally when they get killed or summoned, except their own community, right? When he, Samir Asir and Josh Howie were killed, there were a few hundreds in the streets. There were a million people before that. So the political parties that were also supposedly part of that grand alliance called March 14, didn't necessarily show up, right? You can say the same for Lukman Slim, the big parties that supposedly oppose Hezbollah. So I'm not gonna go into that uh, further, but mm -hmm. I think I, I made my point. I don't think that we can aim for anybody that is part of this establishment to protect people who are progressive and secular and revolutionary and inherently believe 
that it's the entire system that should be toppled. I agree. I agree with your sentiment, but I always it's it's funny when you're talking about that stretch. I also think about those moments where alliance was being it was quiet. Sometimes it became public where Samir Asir is interrogated, he's summoned. It's Rafiq Hadidi who's inviting him over that night. That's true. So there's that too. Yeah, but we've talked about that, right? It's it's in a situation where you have fundamental contradiction within yeah. the same political establishment. Right, right. Which is very far from what we have today. Today yeah. you have a conflict over uh, very futile stuff, which yeah. is disguised as uh, a conflict over the kind of country we want. Yeah. I'd like to go into diaspora, because yeah. that's a subject we both wanted to discuss in not just money. It's not just fundraising, and it's not just elections. Mm-hmm. It's power. Yeah. So you can maybe talk here and say why you think the diaspora is very important right now. I mean, in the same spirit of building robust infrastructures, obviously the ones who are here, like all of us, are fight- fighting two fights. The fight to get organized and the actual fight, which is all the daily political fights, everything that is pumping all our energies from what happened, like the summonings to uh, stuff happening on the economy and so on. So... I don't think that alone the ecosystem that remains uh, active in Lebanon can uh, can sustain itself. Uh, and the kind of support that is needed from, from the diaspora is, is not just the financial one. It also has to do with the ability to build uh, a place where ideas can, uh, can emerge. And not just as a, Lib- a Lebanese diaspora, because I think the conversation has been very much uh, Lebanon-focused so far. Not just Lebanese diaspora, you mean? Yeah, I I genuinely believe that what we're facing here can be understood as a broader uh, Arab uh, world crisis, right? Or at least Mm, Levant mm. crisis. We're talking about countries that are uh, completely stripped of their agency. People have absolutely no control over their fate. That are militarized, that are being uh, played with by uh, uh, different camps. Uh, and uh, we also are talking about waves of uh, protests that coincided with each other from 2011 to 2019. So for me, there is also something broader about thinking of that broader Arab democratic ecosystem, which for me is the necessary condition for a genuine democratic project to exist in Lebanon. And on that front, mm. I believe that the diaspora has a huge role. But what is it exactly? Are they, how are they participating politically? They're not today, but I think that the potential of getting organized outside as Lebanese supporting uh, uh, supporting change and supporting the progressives in Lebanon, uh, doing a lobby, uh, fundraising, all of that is important. Mm-hmm. And also as uh, Democrats from the Arab region to also be able to build an infrastructure that can protect people in the region that are fighting that fight. I'm convinced that we cannot strategize and theorize change just on the scale of Lebanon. This is absurd, and this goes against our own history. For us, the turning point for my generation was 2011. It was what was happening in Egypt and Syria and so on. In 2019 also, we've seen a continuation of that. Yeah. And uh, I don't think that we can uh, sustain uh, like a little uh, democratic progressive project at the scale of Lebanon without thinking about how we can have allies across the region that also uphold the same, uh, the same dream and same ambition. So allies across the region, and you mentioned lobbying as well. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of just traditional diplomacy that we can't do here, but the diaspora could do better for us? This is definitely one aspect. There's also an aspect about uh, 
creating uh, a conversation in the media that is actually reflective of uh, people's needs. Mm. And this is a big, uh, big battle. I mean, I think the Palestinian diaspora, for example, has done a, an immense job in the past few years in shifting the conversation about Palestine at a time where the political prospects themselves were very grim for Palestinians uh, in Palestine. So, I mean, there's a role that can expand, I mean, new battlefields for, for, for politics that can happen, uh, that can happen abroad. New forms of alliances, a new form of uh, strength that is, uh, that is injected into the battle that, uh, that we're fighting here. Let's wrap it up with megaphone mm-hmm. a bit. The digital age that we live in, everything that happened to you, I saw it happening live. And at times I didn't, I mean, you can just watch what's happening to you on Twitter, mm-hmm. live streams, and it's very easy. Literally from my bed, I can watch you <laughs> and talk. And, and it's, it's surreal sometimes that we're all in this together. And Megaphone is not just an online platform. It's not just something that started on Facebook or AUB Secular Club. It's an institution today. Mm-hmm. I was speaking to Diana Mandid last week. She was sitting here. I can say the same thing for Deraj. Yeah. These two publications, if you will, platforms, I think are really competing with traditional media. Mm-hmm. And they best represent the ideas you represent too, in that the spirit is 2011 until 2019. You read it. You can feel it. I think every post that's in the background, it's in the, it's in the backbone of, of megaphone looking into the near future, the summonings, the interrogations, the intimidation. Do you think that's in a way going to make megaphones journey harder? Do you sense that these are real stumbling blocks now that even an outlet like megaphone cannot really confront without real support? I think it's going to make it harder, but I think that the media ecosystem that was built over the past five years, the independent media, is more robust than uh, it can sustain a few intimidation, it can sustain that kind of pressure. Mm. Because it's not just about megaphone or daraj, it's also about a generation which, uh, I mean, raised the bar very high in the yeah. streets. And that is not going to buy into that uh, policing that's happening today. We haven't seen people toning it down on social media. Right. People know that they could be summoned for insulting a politician. They're still going on, right? So, I mean, this is not a detail. This is something that is fundamental. It has to do with uh, profound awakening uh, among a whole generation. And I think that this is something that uh, protects us as well. It's not just the fact that we have a following and there are a few publications that are progressive and independent and can protect each other. But it's really about, uh, I think, a general uh, mood that uh, started uh, happening uh, three years ago. It will be very hard to crush with a few intimidation. And it hasn't happened. I mean, we've seen six years of summonings and intimidation, and still yeah. people are speaking up. So you think this is here to stay? I think the intimidation are not just here to stay, but probably there's going to be uh, more violent and more serious. But uh, I think that we'll be able to, to, to sustain it for for a while, provided so, that we still stick, uh, stick around and show solidarity towards each other. So a final point before we go to break and then Q&A, if I'm entering your mind, is there any, not, not fear, but is there any concern for you with how Megaphone will have to navigate the next stretch? In other words, red lines, will you simply keep crossing them, even when those red lines are set half-heartedly? 
or you're summoned by the wrong agency? Are you, is it just unshakable principle that you will keep doing what you do? I mean, you can check the coverage after the summoning. Nothing has changed on the country. I think it's uh, bolder than before. So no, I don't think it's going to impact uh, the way we deal with things. Yeah. Oh, that's the right answer. <laughs> so I think my mom went and killed that guy. <laughs> Where she went. Oh, she's there in the back. Is he with you? You're watching from there. That's not security. You should be here. <laughs> So guys, we'll take a very short break, order your drinks, order some food, and there'll be a Q&A. Thanks to everyone. There's a few questions already. So there's somebody. Yes, yeah, was it you? Did yes, David, right in the middle. Could you stand and just introduce yourself? What you do? Hi, uh, my name is David Isley. Uh, I'm a foreign journalist here. Uh, I used to work with Now Lebanon, but now I uh, work with Improve the News. Um, but my question is for you, Jean. Um, okay, thank you. Uh, I actually uh, happen to agree with you on many things that you're speaking. So perhaps this question is a bit more of a devil's advocate type of question. But uh, let's take the most recent uh, political thing of this week, which was the municipal elections being postponed. Um, uh, the Lebanese forces in Kentayeb, as I'm sure you know, voted with the opposition. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm curious on where do you draw the line? Because I know you mentioned this, obviously, with yeah. what you were talking about. Where do you draw the line in terms of we can work with these people on these specific issues? And when do you really have to say, no, like this is not where we, we will stand with you? And maybe not even on specific issues, just uh, more broadly speaking, in terms of organization and uh, just dealing with political narratives, etc. Yeah. Please, yeah. yeah. No, no, uh, I mean, I've mentioned that in the sense that you have the whole uh, parliamentary life that's based on constant uh, negotiation with the different blocs. You don't have a majority, so you either stay aside or try to make small wins within what's possible. So I think this happened in the past. It also happened uh, with the whole uh, ordeal with uh, Tariq Bitar and, uh, and Awaidit when uh, the change MPs and the Lebanese forces and the Kateb and some other independent MPs also signed a common declaration. I don't find that. I don't think this is an issue. I don't think that it's an issue today if you can, let's say, uh, build uh, a coalition, a parliamentary coalition that can actually get us, I don't know, a civil marriage law. This is all part of uh, the game that happens within parliament. What I was opposed to is any form of strategic alliance and any form of uh, illusion that these people could be a genuine partner in the broader scale of things in trying to reach the kind of country we aspire to. Because I genuinely believe that even if they are with us on a specific uh, battle, this is tied to very narrow interests, and it's not at all related to a common vision that is compatible for the country. But I, I guess, uh, oh, with the microphone, please. Yep. Thanks. Uh, in, 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 uh, towards the more policy end of things, where do you specifically draw the line? Like your, your red line, I suppose. There should be a red line when it comes to policy. I mean, if, if you agree on specific legislation or specific policy, 
I don't think there should be any red line, right? You're both uh, working and lobbying and trying to get enough votes for, for things to pass. The red line is any form of strategic alliance that is compromising uh, our values. I mean, where we stand politically. And as I was saying again, it's not even on the table. There is no deal that is close to what was the case before 2005, so that you can even consider toning it down or re, uh, rethinking our positioning politically. I, th I think we're still very much within the framework of the big scandal that is the economic collapse, on the one hand, that all parties contributed to cover up, as well as what's going on uh, with the absence of uh, accountability uh, regarding the August 4 explosion. We're, we're, and this is the image of the regime in its different faces that for me uh, still uh, sticks. And it's on this basis that I think we should uh, navigate uh, politics today. Thank you, sir. Uh, another question in the front, please. And just your name and Thank you. who you are. Um, Carol Khuzami. I have a question which is a bit of something I wonder about. I mean, I ask myself. You, you mentioned twice, I think, something that I used to say when I speak. We want a country like us, you know? Who us? Uh, the question is, are the majority of Lebanese, at least of young Lebanese, want the same thing? Are we fighting for the same things? Do we have the same understanding of what is a state of law? Of what is, I mean, what is corruption and conflict of interest? It happened to me very often to be with people that I think are educated, and suddenly they say something, and I say, but guys, this is a conflict of interest. And the meaning, I mean, the understanding of conflict of interest and corruption, it's very vague sometimes. So who is us, actually? Is the major, does, the major, does the majority want really a state of law? I mean, the, 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 the us is not, uh, is not very much of an ideological or political us, in a sense. And, and I don't think, and I don't want any form of uh, ideological consensus, because that would be uh, very fascist to say that we want to all see the country the same way. I think the, 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 the us relates to, yet again, what I believe is a foundational moment in Lebanese history, which is October 17, which is a time where people saw that their individual dignity and material interest is the main driving force for politics and is the main uh, factor that actually defines who is us and who is them. And it's not a detail. This happened again in August 4, when us, all of us, felt that we are worth nothing in this country. And this is not uh, poetry. This is really, for me, a clear-cut point in history when one can say there is a regime, there is an establishment with everything it represents, with its ways of operating, and there is a population that is predominantly victim of that, which future has been jeopardized by these people. This is how I see it. And I agree with you. There is no uh, common vision of the exact kind of uh, uh, economic system we want, or uh, even the question of uh, sectarianism and secularism is something that's up in the grab. But, and it, for me, it's, it's such a huge achievement that happened back then. And, Obviously, that is very ephemeral because we've seen that the divide uh, happened very fast. But if you want to compare it to what the left was trying to achieve in the 70s, which is to put forward an interest-based definition of politics and not a sectarian identity base, I mean, October 17 achieved that seamlessly compared to very uh, strong ideological parties that were trying to, to, go, to go that way. So it's not a detail, and I still think that it's a, it's a base on which we can, we can build something politically. 
There's a question. Oh, sorry. Yes, please. Uh, good evening. I am not a Lebanese. I am Arab. But I have a question. I am from Iraq. And I can elect um, a Christian, Yazidi, Sunni, Shi, anyone. We have the law make us free for elect, elect, electing who? The person who make uh, feel is it's all right. We we, we like him. Uh, those uh, in Lebanon, I, I I hear, or maybe it's a clear, um, it's just information. Um, the 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 system of elections that makes the Lebanese uh, the Maori maybe just elect a Maori. Is is that um, or the Sushi is uh, or the Sunni? elects one of his kind is that right is this a democracy really is it a democracy we can't talk about now i can't i cannot elect a, a muslim i cannot elect a, a, a christian one who like who am i like is that is that right we uh, cannot build a democracy by this way actually actually we can't thank you it's not, it's not, I'm not defending the system here, but it's not the Lebanese. I hear about this, and my friend is... Oh, sorry, sorry. I, I have a friend, and he told me this. It's a kind of, I, I'm not sure of it. I'm sorry if I interrupted, but I, you, you may be, correct me, please. No, no, it's extremely sectarian, but not that way. So uh, you vote on a list of candidates that reflect the demography of your of your what's the word um jurisdiction, jurisdiction yeah. yeah so it's not that sunnis vote for sunnis or shia vote for shia no but it's not i'm not defending the system here yeah <laughs> it's good it's not that bad <laughs> uh there was another question at the bar in the back yes the gentleman Hello, my name is Chris Fadel. I'm an upbrought uh, right-wing Christian. I was a right-wing Christian today. I'm not, fortunately enough. Just, just today? or Just today, just, just today. now. And I have two questions that touch on the same thing. I think it's the quest for answers and solutions. Today, what the wasted French dude touched on was actually relevant in a way because he was talking about academia and how they have answers and how today us sitting and alias drinking via Baitan Nourin and Jameson and fancy shit and stuff um, maybe don't have answers to that and the reality of the ground uh, is a bit different than what we can have today behind these four walls uh, with very nice books behind and very nice people around. I'm not critiquing that. I'm part of this uh, uh, environment so what's 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 the actual answer and solution to the problems we have today it's a very big question I don't expect precise answers to that plus second uh, uh, part of the question is being an upbrought right-wing Christian today the political discourse of the Lebanese forces and the Kata'ib sometimes and more and more today because of this opposition to Hezbollah touches more to my upbringing than any alternative discourse where, whence it also talks about this divide, this sectarian and federal divide of regions and stuff. That also allows me to do my job of selling things and making beer and stuff. So it's a very 
wide question that has two folds, and it's addressed to both of you, mainly Jean in a way, but yeah, that's my question. So, and it also touches on a question from so someone. So we'll let Jean and then I'll talk, but I'd like to ask you this question. You said you're, you, you grew up a certain way, you don't feel that way anymore. Is that, did I get that right? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so, absolutely. So you feel what now? You feel... Like a handkerchief in the, in the wind, blown away. No, but I do feel closer to much more liberal, uh, egalitarian uh, ideals. But when reality hits the fan, and the, real, the economic reality and the way I conduct my business, I make beer, so my job is to sell beer in particular regions, obviously. Uh, sometimes you're like, oh, you know, it might be better if it's divided, right? And I'm saying it unapologetically without any desire of actually dividing the country. But sometimes when you fall asleep, you're like, yeah, you know what? This might be better. Okay, John, you want to start? And then I'll... Sure. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of beer do you make? Emir. You're Emir? No way. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's capitalism for you guys. Thank you very much. Can you sponsor the podcast? <laughs> you said it's very expensive beer. Go ahead, John. So, what's the solution? That's the first question. Bottom up, bottom line. Yeah. That's a big question, right? The, the, the solution to the, to the current mess is a bunch of yeah it's not about the solution itself it's do we have the answers to these problems no no but yeah and academic academics sitting in their ivory towers talking about solutions no but 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 so does so does Hezbollah and the Lebanese forces in a sense that nobody today as overwhelmingly powerful as they are have an actual concrete implementable solution that that we can see today right so we're in such a mess that i don't think that we can think in terms of uh, immediate or imminent solution that can uh, solve things if you want to talk about uh, economic uh, reform plans etc first that's not my expertise but you have plenty of uh, measures that have been discussed for the past three years during the economic collapse that actually outline where we could start from and all the previous plans had they been implemented two or three years ago we would have been a very different situation today and this adds to the scandal of, of, of the economic collapse if we want to talk about the infrastructure which in my opinion allows us to have more leverage into how things will unfold i mean i've touched upon it but i can develop it more I'm convinced that structured parties are the way forward. I'm convinced that the way of working in small groups that are just divided mostly because of ego trips and very, very narrow consideration is uh, also a scandal and should end. And people should regroup along more or less the fault lines that I've discussed, like the economic one, the one related to uh, sovereignty, the one related to Lebanon's role in the region and so on. And this is something that's happening today. I mean, I'm personally involved in an initiative that brings together people from different generations, from different regions that are for the first time generally thinking of moving away from the different small belongings they're part of and actually joining forces and putting all their uh, capital into, into one place. But that's also not enough. So the whole infrastructure also includes independent media it also includes what we like to call uh, reclaiming society which is basically reshaping the social and economic ties from sectarian ones to interest-based ones 
So this goes through uh, syndicates or alternative syndicates if they don't exist. It also goes through a lot of uh, autonomous initiatives that can help people sustain and can break with the clientelist way of sustaining yourself. So it's, it's a whole bunch of things which some of them are already happening very organically uh, and without the political ideology and the political label that comes with it. And that's allowing people to, to cope. And I'm not talking here about NGOs. I'm not talking about, uh, sorry to say, but the liberal way of, of dealing with the crisis and just putting a plaster on it with all due respect with a lot of NGOs that do a great job. But to genuinely find ways to reorganize ourselves as a society, to be more robust, and also not to fall into the constant blackmail of clientelism or protection. And on that point, related to blackmail, I'll answer your second question, which is related to the Lebanese forces and Kataib. Obviously, since you're a person who was brought up in a Christian family, etc., there's something that seems a bit more familiar. I've talked a lot about why I think these two parties in particular are not credible in the uh, broader uh, battle for change. But I think there's something fundamental, which for me is a non-negotiable, is the question that the Lebanon that I know of from north to south could be potentially re-questioned. And for me, it makes absolutely no sense to fight for a Christian canton, right? And the same way uh, this idea was uh, very popular uh, years ago, it's scary that it's also very popular today. And even if it's disguised as uh, a decentralization, we're all for decentralization. I'm uh, not a fan at all of the big central state. I, I like small uh, communes that can vote and have direct democracy and all of that. But this is not what we're talking about, right? So for me, if the end game is ending up, okay, we can't live with the rest of the country. So let's just uh, stick to each other from Sodeco to, uh, to Batroun. Uh, without me, I'm not, I'm not interested in that. And uh, I'm not saying this in a, in a provocative way because I'm not saying that these two parties are planning that today. I'm not saying that they're actually pushing for that. But I know that this could be an option for them. And I'm not putting them in the accusation box because it's an option for them. They might resort to that, uh, to that thing. But for me, there's a fundamental disagreement is that I don't see myself as a, a Greek Orthodox citizen or a Christian citizen. And that's something that is a, is a fundamental split. It's irreconcilable for me. Permit, permit me to sound a bit like a dinosaur. Uh, last week or whatever, a few days ago was April 13. Last Thursday, April 13. I'm going to add what Jean said. I'm not going to disagree necessarily. I'll just add to it. I think this whole narrative falls flat unless we go back to the reason why Lebanon fell apart. And I think that begins in the early 1970s. It doesn't begin in 2011 or 2005 or 2019, or necessarily even the port blast. I think this country's problems were already embedded in 1969, but they could be overcome. And I'll answer the second part first. Uh, in two weeks, I'm having an episode on MTV with Hisham Bounassif. He's Mr. Federalism. And I think he gets a bit upset when I host people that don't like federalism. He actually calls me sometimes, demanding that we talk. So I gave him that space. I'm not Christian, Greek Orthodox or Maronite, I'm going to guess. I love your beer. I love your beer. <laughs> but it's a cosmopolitan. Consensual. I'll, I'll use a different word. I like cosmopolitan, which is really what Alias is. It's what this neighborhood is. And I agree with Jean. 
There's no point in having a stupid little country from Sodico to Pshere down to Betron. That would be a very, un, very unflattering version of Lebanon. And I think it wouldn't work. Despite their romanticism and maybe what you grew up with too, it's folklore. That's not Lebanon. But Christian insecurity is real, which is, I think, something that has to be addressed. It's impossible to ignore it. And the reason that kind of idea takes hold, it starts with decentralization, it moves to federalism, and then it becomes partition, and then it becomes divorce very quickly. I think that happens as that community decreases in population and feels like it's being shortly extinct in Lebanon. That may not be reality, but they feel it. I think that has to be addressed. And this is when I go back, not to 1975, but to 1989. It's the damn constitution. It's the roadmap we have. There's three things that Ta'if demanded. Get the Syrian army out within a few years. It took them too long. Disarm all militia. Hezbollah lives with us. The third one is the Senate. That's called sectarian reform. I think that's the kind of stuff you can address when Lebanon is not a battlefield for war. Otherwise, the port blast is going to happen. I don't think the port blast is about corruption. I don't think it's about negligence. I think it's because Lebanon pays an ultimate price for being a battlefield. So this is when I go back to 1970 always, which is you have to untangle a security infrastructure that destroys this country over and over and over. It's not about the PLO. It's not about Hafiz Wala Bashar. not about Hezbollah. It's that we have sub-state infrastructure that destroyed two lives. I mean, I don't know if you feel this way all the time. There's no reason people like us should be representing our names. Your uncle should be alive. My father should be alive in their prime. March 14 should shine better because of them. They're dead because of that problem too. Ali, as we mentioned this two weeks ago, this place is blown up because of that problem too. And I think all good politics dies as a consequence. I think that's the story. So whenever we go too deep into what Riyadh Salim did in certain years, or for that matter, what Saad Hadidi compromised, or whether Samir Shaja got Michel Aoun in because of no allies, or because he really wanted Michel Aoun in, forget all that. None of that matters. I think Lebanon is destroyed because of what happened in 1970. It took five years, though. Five years for Lebanese to start killing each other, which is where I always disagree on one thing. I don't think Kateib is bad. Kateib is Lebanese. They're a foot soldier-like political party in the 1930s. They're basically known for sports clubs in Tripoli in the 1950s. They become things like Bashir Jmeil in the 1970s. And today, Nadim Jmeil. Or for that matter, Sami. He's not a warlord. He's actually one of us. He's in an old party. Absolutely. He, he inherited a lot. But Sami Jmeil is Lebanese like you and me. And Kateb is Lebanese too. Le I always say this over and over. Kateb is not designed to be a militia. It becomes a militia in the 1970s. It's not a militia in 1943. And it's not a militia in the 1960s. It was highly inspired by the fascist aesthetics. Yeah. You're right. But do we have a Bashir Jmeil statue in Sisin in 1956 or 57? No. Yes. No, no, what I, no, no, I, I'm only trying to, ha I'm always, I, I lose this debate all the time. 
No, no, no. I mean, among my friends, <laughs> I don't think the system is good or bad. It's the system. It needs to be reformed. It can't be overthrown. If that were possible, 2005 would have ended with Lebanon reborn. And that's that. But that's my take. You can, if you want to add... Uh, I mean, I obviously disagree, but we're not going to spend the, the whole night. But sure. on, 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 on the question of whether a party was designed to be a militia, I mean, I think that there was a lot of the aesthetic of Kateb in the early days that resembles a lot the fascist parties of Europe. But besides that point, there is a fundamental uh, a reality that you have to accept is that the Kateb and the Lebanese forces were defeated militarily. Yeah. Right? So uh, that doesn't make them... Uh, uh, saints or that doesn't make them more progressive there's an actual fact which is the political defeat and the ideology that they uphold for me is the least you can say very aggressive it's undeniable that the Kata'ib went through a different journey in the past five years but still we find a lot of inherent contradiction within that party that is at the same time trying to appear as almost a socio-democratic party that is leaning towards being a secular party and a primarily Christian party that's still tied to a political family that has been uh, there for a while. I mean, uh, I think both say, both uh, sentiments can be true. The next week's guest is Lara Bitar. She was summoned by the Cyber Crimes Bureau Department for writing an article about waste and environmental uh, barrels, very very uh, ugly waste in the 1980s that kills people in the mountains. I think that can be the Lebanese forces, and it can also be. Reform-minded ministers. It can be both. I think it depends when. I don't know if this is a DNA issue. And I think over time, if, it's, if we're left to the margins always, Lebanon will simply drift away while we're in the margins. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. That's, that's uh, my take. Senator's question. All right. My question is going to be a little bit, little bit complicated because it requires some explanation. So... Um, other than being a sound engineer and a vegan chef, I'm also a filmmaker, and I'm very specifically a social justice filmmaker. Um, I, this was not new to me. Like I started this when I was a teenager, uh, still living here. And then I moved to Quebec at some point, and I helped co-found 99% Media, which is an independent media for social justice, which was born out of the Occupy movement. Mm -hmm. Coming back here, I had this great grand idea of, yeah, I'll start something like that here. Yeah, sure. But then I was faced with the reality of here. And that goes with, um, well, well on, on, on one level, education is a major, major problem. Uh, the majority of people here have the notion of what liberalism is or what... Uh, he, the human rights is and all of that because they got it from outside sources. They never really learned it here. They, they know the words, but they don't understand the concept. And this is something that I witnessed firsthand uh, in 2019, October. It's like a lot of people chanting these ideas, but then sit down, talk with them. They have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, I was going, I'm going, getting to a question, just trying to remember what the question is. All right. Um, the other side of things here, like I've lived through the Civil War, and no political party for me, by the way, is uh, uh, viable. They're not Lebanese to me. Not a single one of them. 
because they participated in the, in the civil war, because they took arms against each other, against us, against the civilians. But that's another story. Um, we are also missing an integral history in our education that you know nobody knows. Every every side has their own story, so that that adds to the problem. That adds to the uh, general, for lack of a better word, ignorance of who we are, what our identity is, and why we are here. So, uh, in my work, I do a lot of uh, work with NGOs, a lot of work with academians. One of my things is to interpret uh, academic research into visuals. So, I know there's a lot of solutions that do exist. I know there's a lot of good thinking that exists, but how do you bring it all together, especially when Everybody wants to be the leader, including the leftists. Of course. I mean, I'm just going to react on the education part, because I agree with you, there is, let's say, lack of exposure, and definitely the school system is uh, in, a bad, in a bad shape. But I also think that, especially the generation that got politicized in October 17, actually knows pretty much what they're talking about. And I think that the street is a great school in so many aspects. Not only teaches you politics in the ugliest and most beautiful form of it, but it also constantly confronts you to like the diversity of opinions. And I know that uh, for months you had people who like discovered their own country, and uh, so that's just uh, like on the side. Um, how 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 do you do it? I mean, we already touched upon the idea of uh, of, of egos, a very petty uh, interest, but. I also have witnessed and have been part of uh, different forms of political organizing that actually succeeded in pro producing robust institutions. I mean, I remember back in the day in 2011 when I joined the UB Secular Club. So obviously it was a big joke for a lot of people because that wasn't October 17 and being anti-establishment was seen as something very foolish. And, uh, and actually then it was probably the best time to to work in politics because you knew that the ones who were sticking around were not really here for any uh, form of uh, social capital or anything that can be uh, uh, materialized uh, in a sense, which is the case uh, today. <laughs> uh, and they were here because, uh, I mean, really ideologically and they had a drive for that. And it happened and it was a success story and it became the third force on campus and the model was replicated to other universities. And then there was a network called MEDA, which was founded. And today it groups around 20 of those secular clubs, half of them in universities. So this is also a story that is uh, leaderless in the classical sense of the leadership. So you don't have prominent faces. I'm part of the movement. A lot of people are part of the movement. Uh, it doesn't abide by the same uh, scheme. And it also has a limited ability to, to move because it's not a party. It's still limited within an age group and so on. But I mean... I, I believe that there are a lot of innovative ways to do politics and uh, combine the need to deliver and the pragmatism that comes with it with a set of values that build uh, very healthy institutions. And with what we're doing now, like the attempt to, to bring together these different crowds of activists from different walks of lives, I think a big chunk of the exercise is uh, thinking about the how, about the model, not just what we stand for, but how can we actually uh, convene in a way that creates a productive uh, political institution that is not toxic and at the same time that is viable and is not fully flat 
unable to to move, unable to uh, tackle all the challenges we're facing. I don't know if I answered your question. I tried to. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Was there a question about organization and structure? I remember somebody wanted to ask about that. Please. It is not about structure. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. It is about decentralization because uh, I think that it's interesting in here in this conversation. Decentralization has been mentioned twice and in extremely different ways. Like Jean mentioned it as a way to differently organize society on the one hand. And on the other hand, it was mentioned in, as um, like close to like a federal idea of Lebanon. So as a Christian project to like uh, divide Lebanon in different cantons and um, like federal units. So I was wondering, uh, what's your take on decentralization and also how to disentangle like this policy project that has been debated in Lebanon from the sectarian logic that is out there? Thank you. Do you want to answer this? Um, yeah, I can start. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've touched upon it, but I think that uh, for me, anything that has to do with, uh, with local politics is particularly interesting because it brings forward, in my opinion, stuff that are more interest-based and more leaning on the socioeconomic than on the identity questions. When you want to rule or want to, to uh, manage a city, the, the, the concerns are very much about uh, the environment, about uh, social policy, etc. And this was the bet right back in the day when I was also involved in Beirut Madinati. The question was that this was really a vector through which uh, a more socioeconomic uh, conversation can, uh, can happen. I still believe that this is the case. I still believe that even if at the local level there are also other uh, identity-based uh, dynamics, one can still find a way to, to reorganize things in a way that is, uh, that is more interesting and that's based on interest rather than sectarian identity. Uh, but this is all dependent on if we are able as political structure to take these opportunities. The municipal elections are, are a great example. I think today, if we have the ability to play that game, we could actually really present a model of uh, how we would rule if, let's say, assuming we managed to win Beirut. Okay, This is a fantastic opportunity to actually demonstrate in real life how a bunch of people who are competent and progressive could actually rule a city. And in the imagination, showing something that's that concrete is, is insane. Like the scalability after that, when you show a proof of concept, is, is, is huge. But at the same time, if you're not ready for that battle, which I, I think is a reachable one, uh, the more sectarian approach to decentralization and local governance is the one that will prevail. And unfortunately, this is the one today that is occupying uh, the biggest uh, the biggest share of the conversation, the conversation about federalism, which started also as an argument about uh, decentralization and better governance. And today is, is, is blatantly uh, talking about a uh, sectarian divide of the country without any shame. So, I mean, to, to sum it up, I think that, yes, we should have a bigger share of our conversation dedicated to to that uh, because otherwise we'll just leave the ground for for the ones who are more in favor of a sectarian definition of decentralization to take over that conversation william um, stand up william let's no, see you stand up no. <laughs> <laughs> this might sound a, a cheaper question but we keep hearing this word secretarian, secretarian, secretarian. I've lived here almost 10 years, or more than 10 years actually. I don't know what it means. Like, I literally don't, I mean, uh, the, the biggest, but, but I don't, the biggest, the biggest, you know. Thank you. Our alcohol sales <laughs> drop most during Ramadan. 
I've had conversations with Christian people who said they wouldn't let their daughter marry a Muslim man because he'd take three more wives. But I've never met a Muslim man here with, with four wives. So like, what, we keep talking about this, this, this idea, but what, what is it? Do you want to take this or should Let's I? Have I'll start maybe. Hey. I, thank you for this question. I don't know if that's a product of you being here the last two months listening to this podcast. Possibly, I mean. Maybe, possibly. Thank you for that question. I'll say something very unpopular. I agree. I agree. I think it's not positive or negative. It means absolutely nothing, yet in Lebanon it seems to mean everything. I think it's who we are, period. I think if you remove that word from Lebanon, there's no Lebanon. Not the bad side, not the ugly side, not prejudice, not academics and federalism that want partition, not that, or the joy of having two time zones when suddenly there's a Twitter war and Christian anxiety seems to be the issue. Not that, not that. But I think a grouping of communities that found a way to share power in history, not in the 20th century, over centuries, I think that's fine. That's Lebanon. That's how it evolved. And I think that's how it will die too. So I agree with you. But reforming everything has to include reforming that, which is why I mentioned the Senate. No one talks about it. The Senate, I think, is the most appropriate way to handle federalism, sectarian anxiety, Christian decline, enshrine it. It makes sense. Lebanon deserves it. It's in the fucking Ta'if agreement. Sorry for my, I've never cursed on the podcast before, but it's there. It's right there. So is, by the way, the spirit of decentralization. Mm Mm-hmm. It's all there. You know, at least we could do is try to kickstart what ended the civil war rather than running around in circles. I share the sentiment. Now, Jean. <laughs> no, no. I mean, uh, I also don't think that we are uh, some very weird tribes, very different from each other. I think that we are a society that's plural and diverse and has a lot of different uh, cultural facets. Uh, but what makes the sectarian identity uh, salient or prevalent political identity is due to very material conditions which is the fact that the state has been taken over and the state services have been redistributed in a, in a, according to sectarian allegiance or political allegiance. I mean, there's this very material reality that has to do with clientelism on the one hand and distribution of uh, state resources and services, which defines what sectarianism is concretely, not at the level of identities and people hating each other, but at the level of how the system functions. And a lot of people today depend on that system to get employment, uh, to get education, to get uh, healthcare, etc. The same goes for security. Security has also been privatized along the same lines. So basically the deal after the 90s is this blackmail that in exchange of allegiance to a specific party or sectarian political uh, leader, you would get access to those uh, forms of protections, be it social or actually security related. So I don't think that uh, the conversation should be about whether the Lebanese are uh, compatible or they're one people or so on. I mean, we have way more diverse countries that are doing really fine. It's really about how, uh, how the state has been completely hijacked and co-opted and the services has been uh, given in exchange of, uh, of allegiances. There was one more time for one more question. Yes, please. Can you just stand and say who you are, please? Yes. Laila Khoury. I work at the Lebanese Palestinian Dialogue Committee. Um, sorry. Oh, close to my mouth. Yes, these things are pretty terrifying to me. 
Um, so I work in something pretty different. I work in foreign policy, which typically is uh, actually allocated to a sort of big central state. So it becomes a very different set of questions. Um, and for that reason, I guess, well, first, I would like to thank Jean for very much speaking um, the voice of my generation, people who aren't interested in subscribing to alliances or sects that we are told that we should. They just don't mean anything to me personally as well. Um, but second, I guess there's not time to answer this question, so I'll invite you to a conversation about it. Uh, I'm solutions-oriented. I want to think if we are hoping to have the same end goals for domestic policy and foreign policy, I think we need to really think not just about coalition building and about um, you know, becoming a, a force in the, in the sense of a political coalition. I think we need to, actually, I would love to have an in-depth discussion about the form of the central government that has served us so horribly. And we're alluding to it. We're alluding to it by talking about thought if we're alluding to it in many, many elements of the discussion. I guess I would be interested to hear some major changes that you would like to see in the way that the state operates for the future so that we don't get to a point where we lose thousands of dollars of savings in the banks and so many other things that actually unite us more than we are divided, I would say. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's twofold that you have the constitution and then we can go into the conversation whether whether Taif is a good baseline to start and whether the Senate is a good baseline to start or we want something more ambitious. And there's something related to taking back of the state as an institution that has been absolutely hijacked and emptied from from uh, from any power, any leverage today, except the security arm of that state, which is still. Uh, yeah. For example, I would ask if there are any parts that are reworkable, or if we just scrap the whole system. Or system. I know there's. Speaking of defining sectarianism, I took a really great class with Dr. Fawaz Rabolse back when he was teaching about defining sectarianism. And there's people who have great allegiance to the current system. And so, are we talking about scrapping sectarianism? Or are we talking about making another sect? Yeah, there's all these questions. They're too open-ended for now. But I guess, do you see that there are parts? of the current setup that are workable? Are we talking about burning it to the ground? Like, what's your vision? I mean, to, to be honest, the, the main thing that imposes itself today is much less a conversation about the type of regime or political system we need, but way more about the economic uh, emergency we're dealing with. Because I think that this is by far what will profoundly reshape society. It has already reshaped it. We have 80% poverty. So I think what we can actively engage and should actively engage with today is that part. And uh, the last chapter of that uh, economic scandal is this whole conversation about selling state assets. And we know what that means in Lebanon. It means privatizing to part of the same a bunch of uh, crooks. So you're in a situation where you have people who've already uh, emptied the state uh, budget, completely stolen the resources, uh, made uh, gambles with people's money, uh, made sure, yeah, made sure that this goes unpunished, and are now saying, okay, whatever remains from that state, we're going to also find a way to make good use of it. So I think for me, this is a top priority to try to go against that uh, that wave, which is very serious, right? And Parallelly, one should also obviously think about, yeah, politically, what kind of uh, political system we want. But this is like a way broader conversation. Sorry. <laughs>
But that's a great question. Mm. And maybe it sounds absurd, but I think a measure of breathing space for Lebanon, you talk about foreign policy, I don't think we need to pay the price all the time. It's absurd, John. It's absurd. We are housing ammonium nitrate for absolutely no reason. Yeah. That's the story. I think if there's a goal, maybe it's to find a way to shield Lebanon from that issue, but make it real. It's not just fiction. It's real. Whether it's consensus within, or regional understanding, or an international guarantee that Lebanon doesn't pay the price, maybe our kids will see a better Lebanon. Maybe. But I think that is the goal when it comes to the biggest problem, which is how do you untangle that security network? None of us can. None of us can. We can talk about it. We can even sometimes, we can face real intimidation from it, mm -hmm. but we can't really do anything about it. But I'll end it on a high note. You don't know this, so I wanted to save it for tonight. Uh, June 2005, I was in Cessin at Le Chase. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember Le Chase. Of course. Yeah. You do. Mm -hmm. Shut down, what, a few years ago? Six, seven, eight years ago or so? It's still there, but a different, it's still there. different shape. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Different. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a different chase. Mm -hmm. I was sitting there reading a book about Beirut mm -hmm. when Samir Asil was killed. Mm -hmm. I actually heard the car bombing. There's no Facebook or Twitter or anything to find out what's happening. You simply run home. I got into a service and I went home in Hamra. And it took a few hours to finally realize what had happened. I think that incident is what made me stay in Lebanon permanently long ago. I started giving my walking tours as a tribute to Samir Asir. And thousands of people joined me, ending the tour at the statue in Martyrs Square. I would read quotes from Samir, from his book, sometimes quotes from An-Nahar as well, but I would celebrate him. And every anytime somebody got the quotes right and translated it right, they got the book, Tarikh Beirut. And there's a copy in the back, and somebody was sitting earlier, mm -hmm. and I mentioned it to yeah, him passing. Yeah. You saw that, mm -hmm. right? I'm like, yeah, this is family, family legacy. He kept me in Beirut. He gave me my best years. Mm -hmm. That walking tour and that storytelling is really why I stuck around. In the middle of 2019, I was already doing my podcast, but Megaphone took off. Mm -hmm. And you guys were redefining what it means to be active. I mean, Megaphone and October 17 really go hand in hand. So thanks to you, I had a co-host in Martyr Square, recording live episodes every day from protesters. You inspired me too. So on that note, you continue to inspire, I think, not just individuals or this generation. I think you redefined the standards for journalism. Mm -hmm. I know we didn't talk about it much this episode, but Megaphone stands tall. And it stands taller with you. So on that note, thanks to everyone thanks who joined. Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you, you. Jean Asir. Thanks, Ronnie. A real treat for me. Thanks. Thanks for listening and watching. And a friendly reminder to support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>